Well, good morning, Journey. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's good to be here today. If you know who I am, if you don't know by now, I mean, come on, who doesn't know who I am? I'm just kidding. Uh, we, I am Christian Gracia. I am here on staff at Journey as a church playing resident. 30 second story. I am from Vegas. Me and my wife. No, we're not Raiders fans. Just so you know. Okay. I calm down. I know you guys hear Vegas. You might think Raiders. We're not Raiders fans. We're actually Chiefs fans. All right. So amen. Thank you. Absolutely. So we came from Vegas, uh, feeling a calling to maybe plant a church somewhere in the country. And so a uh, step of that is me finishing my education up at a seminary in North Kansas City, Midwestern. And so while I'm doing that journey has taken us under their wing to kind of learn the ropes and see how we can grow and prepare for whatever God has for us next. My wife, if you don't know, was the lady right here leading worship. I'm a big fan. Hope you are too. And uh, so we're here and uh, we've been here for about a year now, which is insane to me. Like it's been a year. Yeah. Like a t- couple weeks ago, a year. So we're past a year now, but it's been great. Thank you for being a church to bring us in. We feel like this is our home right now, and it's been awesome. It's been a great place, great experience. Wouldn't want to be anywhere else. But let's talk about something serious. Who loves going to the movies? Raise hands. If you like going to the movies, that's right. Come on. Yeah, that's my people. There's a lot of good people in this room today. I love that. I love going to the movies. Growing up, it's something me and my dad did all the time as a kid, as a teenager, young adult. Went to the movies all the time. Me and my wife dating and just being friends, being married. We still love going to the movies. It's one of our favorite things to do, to sit in a dark room, watch a movie with overpaid popcorn and just enjoy the time. And then uh, her family is our big movie people too. They love going to the movies. So on Christmas, our tradition that we have is whatever big blockbuster movie is coming out on Christmas Day, Usually it's, you know, a Marvel movie, Star Wars movie, or some other action movie. Um, we'll go to that movie as a family. A little bit difficult now that we have kids, but we work around it. But that's my kind of movies. I'm an action movie kind of guy. Don't mind a rom-com every now and then. But for the most part, I want to go see an action movie. The Marvel movies, DC movies, the Star Wars movies, even the spy movies. 007, Mission Impossible. The Fast and Furious movies now are like spy movies. They used to be like street racers. Now they're saving the world. That's unreal. Regardless, though, what I love about all these movies is they've adopted basically the same plot line. There are all these crazy stories of how the world's going to end, and it's impossible for anyone to save it. The protagonist or the hero or the team of people who are going to do anything about it, they got like no chance. And now they're doing this thing where it's like, oh, they're going to be, they're going to win. And then it's like, never mind, they're not. You're like, oh, but we all know they're going to win. Like, it is incredibly lazy writing. We know it's going to happen, but we still say, Here's my money, show me the same movie, just with a different title. We're like, we love it. So that's my kind of movies. And I think the reason why we love those movies is because we love seeing a hopeless situation find hope. I think there's something in us as human beings that we love to see danger and hopelessness and despair and see the hero come out on top and get to rejoice and be happy that there's a happy ending. I think we're wired to want that. And today we're going to look at a man's story in the Bible that is essentially living a Mission Impossible movie. He's in a situation that is beyond hope, beyond repair, but we're going to see what happens when Jesus walks into a situation like that and see what he does. And then we're going to watch this man have what I like to call an unexpected maybe Jesus moment. You ask, what's this Maybe Jesus all about? What's that even verbiage about? Well, the last couple of weeks, we've been in a series called Maybe Jesus, and we've been talking a lot about hope because of the state of our city. Pastor Christian in October got an email from Barna with some statistics about our city, and they are heartbreaking. Currently, what we know about our city right now is that 71% of us feel stressed. 
62% of us feel anxious. 53% of us feel burned out. 47% of us feel lonely. 46% of us feel depressed. We see these numbers, these statistics, and we think, man, our city is hurting. Our city is hurting. And probably I would say if you went and looked at this at a global scale, even just a country scale, it probably looks a lot like this too. But what's interesting is a stat that's not on the screen is that 60% of those people believe the church is equipped and able to help them. So they're not only hurting, but they're open. They're open to saying, maybe Jesus is the answer to my situation. Maybe he can actually offer me the hope that I need. So we're talking about that this whole month of hope. And speaking of which, you're going to want to come back next weekend on the 30th. You heard about it a little bit in the announcements video. We're going to have a special guest speaker or a group of speakers to cap off this series. The Barracks family is going to be coming here to share their story. They got in a fatal accident um, years ago from a drunk driver. All four of them should have died, and they didn't. They survived. Now what they do is they have a ministry called Hope Out Loud, where they go around and share their story and their testimony to help people who've been ran over by life find out a way to get back up and keep going. So we're going to have a great time with them next Sunday. And then Sunday night, you should come back because at 6 p.m., we're going to be having a kickoff of our spiritual community and care season. We believe to be the church, you got to care for the church, which means that you should be in community with other believers. If you want to go far, you got to go with other people. If you go by yourself, you'll go fast, but you'll probably burn out. You'll probably not make it that far. People are hard and difficult, but they make it worth it. And we believe the church is called to be in community with one another. So we take that seriously. And next Next week, we're going to be kicking off in kind of like a party launch fashion, um, having not only the barracks share more of their story, but also have opportunities out in the lobby and the atrium of how you can get involved and plugged in here at Journey. And then also at the end of it, I hear rumors of an incredible dessert bar. So come with high expectations. And if you're disappointed, let Pastor Ryan know. We would love to hear that. So it's going to be a really fun time. Make sure you come back and be here for it. So we're going to be in John 5 today to talk about our Maybe Jesus moment. So if you would flip there, everything we have will be either in the app, on the notes, or on the screen behind us, whether you have an application that's a Bible app or you have your own Bible. We just want you to be seeing always that what we're talking about is coming from the Word of God, not just from my brain or just some fun, cool ideas. So we think it's important to have Scripture with us always. Amen? Amen. Well, before we read, we always like to pray. So would you bow your heads with me? Take a deep breath. And just settle into this moment. And ask God to speak to you directly. Ask that he would meet you here where you're at. Father, that's what we need today. We need to hear from you. And I thank you that I believe you are going to speak today. And I believe you are going to meet with us today, right where we're at. We thank you for being that kind of God. So Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts and our ears to hear what you have for us today. We need you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. All right. So John 5, we're going to be talking about a man who is unlike the other two people we've talked about. In week one of maybe Jesus, we were in John 2 with the mother of Jesus, Mary. She knew what Jesus had come to do and was in a situation needing some help, went to Jesus thinking, maybe you can help me, found out he could and he did. And then last week we in John 3, we had Nicodemus. Nicodemus showed up on the scene as a Pharisee, a very religious person who by all definitions of the word you could have said had arrived spiritually, but finds out that his world gets flipped upside down. When he realizes who Jesus is and Jesus says, you 
you see me, but do you see yourself? And helps him understand that he's got to go back to the starting line spiritually, be born again in order to follow him and actually begin living spiritual life. And this week, we have a little bit different twist here because the guy we're talking about does not know Jesus, is not looking for Jesus, but is about to have a spectacular encounter with Jesus. And I think through this passage, my aim is really to show you two things that we see in Jesus' life and learn a few things about him. But before we get there, I want to set up the scene of what we're talking about in our passage. And we're going to do that by reading the first five verses. So if you would, John 5, 1 through 5, scripture will be on the screen behind me. Says this in verse 1 Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which is in Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, I want to answer a question about this place. You're probably thinking of like, what is so special about this pool of Bethesda? Why are people laying around it? All these people with all these ailments. Why are they spending their days and their weeks and the months laying here at this pool? The term Bethesda actually means house of mercy. It's very fitting because it was seen as kind of like a last resort place. You ask why. Well, actually, in order to have that question answered, not fully, but to have some more clarity, we have to look a little bit outside the Bible and get a little scholastic. Because the passage here that actually explains what goes on is kind of missing. If you notice in your Bible, if you're paying attention to the verses, we went from verse 1 to 2 to 3 and then to 5. You might be thinking, does the Bible know how to count? Yes, the Bible knows how to count, and no, that's not a mistake. But to understand how this works, we have to understand how the Bible came together. See, back in Jesus' day, and for pretty much 15 centuries of our history, the way that you got copies of things or you circulated information was by making copies, by hand usually, a very meticulous process. So, for instance, John here wrote this letter, his gospel, his account of Jesus' ministry. Someone would take that original copy, and they would copy it by hand, whether a scribe professionally or a layperson. That's how they would do it. Then they'd pass it along, and then someone else would do it and pass it along. And that's how it circulated out throughout of all history is by making copies of what we have called the New Testament. Now, the New Testament itself, as a, a, of an ancient book, has an embarrassment of riches of these copies, which is a very good thing. It is head and shoulders above the rest. But what happens is they go through a process called textual criticism, where you take these copies and you meticulously put them over each other and compare and contrast them to discern what was the original writing. Most of the variations that they find are spelling errors or minor grammatical errors, very small things that are easily weeded out that are not hard at all. But every now and then, there are some things that pop up that they don't find in the oldest copies, such like verse 4 here in John 5. Either there's a small passage or a verse that they're like, this is a helpful verse, and we see why it was added because it brings context, but we're not sure if it's original. So instead of throwing it out the window, they simply just put it usually at the bottom of your Bible. So if you have a NIV translation of your Bible after verse 3, you might see in brackets a 4 with a footnote that leads you down to a note that says something like this. Some manuscripts include here, holy or in part, paralyzed at the end of verse 3. And they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. So, probably most likely this is what people believed. In verse 7, we're going to hear this man actually mention this whole concept of getting into the waters when they're stirred. So it's very likely that's what people believed. But again, we are not sure if it's original, so they don't get rid of it, but they just have it kind of separated away. But this gives us a picture of what the pool Bethesda was. 
This last resort that had people surrounding it all over who were broken and hurting and who were in major need of help. This is like their last chance. You know of anywhere that sounds like that today? A place full of broken and hurting people looking for help? The statistics I just read a little bit ago, I would say, is maybe our city is like that right now. I would say the Pool of Bethesda is a great illustration of our city. I would say it's of our country, of our world. The people who are broken and hurting, who are desperate, and they're just looking for anything to help them. But I think this even gets heavier when you think through it. If you really put yourself in their shoes, this pool surrounded by these five colonnades, hundreds of people are laying around this pool and they're doing one thing day in, day out. They're staring at this body of water. And they're just waiting. They're waiting for anything at all to happen, hoping that there might be some bubbling or some stirring in this body of water. The off chance that that happens, they're hoping to be the one person who could jump in after everyone else get into the water and be cured. That's what they're banking on day in and day out, staring at this body of water, hoping that if something happens like that, and if they're the one to beat all the hundreds of other people around, they might finally get help. Meanwhile, the one whom angels report to, who rules over the angels, who has all authority in heaven and earth, who can do anything, is walking among them. But they don't see him because they're staring at a pool, hoping that that can help them. That that is the answer to all their problems and their hurts and their pains. When all they really have to do is just look to Jesus. And it makes me wonder today how many people in this room, if we were this pool of Bethesda, this house of mercy, how many of us today are spending days and weeks and months, years, maybe decades, looking at all the wrong things, any and everything else other than Jesus, for an answer. Waiting for it to come through, knowing it probably won't and it probably can't, but it's all we have. When all we would need to do is just simply look to Jesus. That's the scene of our passage. I would say it's a scene of our world. People looking everywhere else other than Jesus for the answer to their pains and their troubles when really Jesus is the answer and he's right around the corner. But now Jesus is going to walk in and he's going to do something miraculous with this one man. And in this passage, we're going to see him do two things. We're going to see two things about Jesus. The first being his compassion. We're going to see Jesus's compassion. It says this in verse six through nine. It says this, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? It's a good question. We'll come back to that in a second. Verse seven, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So you see already what verse four was saying, this man is supporting. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. So why I say that we see Jesus' compassion is because there's really no reason for Jesus to do what he just did. There's only about nine times in the Gospels that you'll actually see Jesus walk up and do something straight from just the compassion and pity he has on someone's situation. From seeing what this man was 
enduring and going through. He was moved to take action, which praise the Lord that we have a God who does that, who has the compassion to see where we're at and not just coldly watch on, but to act. And Jesus did just that. He put his compassion on display for this one man. And I think through this compassion, we learn three things about Jesus. The first one is that he is able. Jesus is able. This point really takes, I think, some weight when you realize what the condition the man was in. We know in verse 5 that he had been laying there for 38 years. No one in this room is thinking, eh, 38 years. Not that long. That's a long time. That's an enormously long time, 40 years of being someone who can't get up, who can't move, laying on a mat at this pool. What makes it crazier, though, is when you realize what the average life expectancy of someone who lived back then was, which is about 35 years, which meant that this man had been laying on the ground longer than most people lived. People point to that as the severity of his condition, that it was probably the worst one at the pool. He probably was there longer than anyone else, watching people come there to get healed and either dying or maybe finding healing or maybe finding help and moving on. But he had been laying there for years, probably longer than anyone, probably in this condition that no one thought there was any hope. But Jesus chose him to go and heal him, I believe, to demonstrate his power that he is able And that is not just true 2,000 years ago. That is true today. Jesus is able. This severe condition is mission impossible. This is not an easy thing Jesus did, but he went to this man and he did the impossible because there is no problem that's too hard for him. There's not a relationship he can't fix, a marriage he can't save. There's not an addiction he can't break. Whatever it is, Jesus does not look at anything and think, I can't touch that. All he has to do is just say the word. Amen? That's all he's got to do. As I was thinking about this passage last night, I was looking over my notes and I was thinking, what is another passage of scripture that just says this in more of a powerful way to help us kind of grasp what Jesus can do? And I thought of Ephesians 3.20, which says this, Now to him who is able to do far more than we can ever think or imagine or ask. That's the category that we have Jesus in. If you could do more than that, then maybe you'll top him. But as far as we know, if you can think it, if you can imagine it, if you can ask it, Jesus can top that. This man probably did not think he could be healed or imagine healing. But Jesus just walked up and said, get up. Because he has the power to do that because he is able. Do you believe that today? You might know that today. You might think that today, but do you believe that today for you? Even right now, 2,000 years later, do you still believe Jesus is able? Because he is. The second thing we learn, though, about him is that he is aware. Jesus is aware. In verse 6, Jesus learns about this man's condition, and he goes to him. And he asked him if he wants to get well, which when I first thought, saw that, I thought, that's a stupid question. Like, why would you ask a question to a man who's been laying on the ground for 38 years if you want to get well? I would have had different words had Jesus asked me that question. But instead, this man replied, sir, and he was polite about it. But then I thought about this more. And when people are in a really hard, broken situation, when people don't have any more hope, they actually might answer that question, No. 
and say, I don't want to get well. I don't want to get better. I don't want to get up. I just want to stay down. In fact, I think we're going to talk about that very thing next week with the barracks, that there's people who have been ran over in life who don't think there's a way for them to get back up. And maybe they won't even want to keep trying anymore. And I think Jesus might have known this man's heart, known his condition and known you probably have no feeling that you could get up right now, but I'm going to ask you anyway. But what's interesting is his answer. Not a yes and a no or no. It's simply a reason why he couldn't be healed, which is another thing I think we've all done before. And we just don't answer the straightforward question. We just say, no, you understand. There's no way for me to be actually get helped right now. He says, because I'm all alone. I have no one to help me. I don't have family. I don't have friends. I don't have a church group. I don't have coworkers. There's no one here to help me. I'm all by myself for 38 years on the ground. No one's here for me. So even if the pool started to do its magic, I couldn't get to the very thing I think could help me because I have no one to carry me there. He didn't answer yes or no. He just said, there's, there's no way. Because he was alone. But what makes this worse is the fact that this pool of Bethesda was located at the sheep gate, which was a gate closest to the temple, which meant that these people were not hidden, which meant that the religious zealots of the day, the the Jewish leaders walked to the temple daily, probably seeing the pool of Bethesda and all these people laying there and never went to help them. And of all the people there, this man was probably the most overlooked with his severe condition. So not only was he alone, but he was overlooked. But Jesus sees him. And Jesus knows what condition he's in. And he goes to him and he helps him. Because he's aware of what he's going through. And the same is true today. He's aware of whatever you're going through today too. He sees you. He knows. There's no one truly ever alone or being overlooked because Jesus is aware. It can feel that way a lot, can it? It can feel like no one understands and no one knows. There's no one around. I have no support. I'm all by myself. 47% of our city feels lonely. Half the room, if I cut it in half and split you guys up in a group, half the room's going to say they feel lonely. The other half won't. That's a pretty big chance for people to be lonely. Just taking two at a time. 50-50% chance that someone in this room is feeling lonely today. I want you to know Jesus sees you. And he knows and you're not alone. If this man was overlooked and alone more than anybody, but wasn't missed by Jesus, there's no chance you are today because he's aware. He's able, he's aware. Thirdly though, he is always working. For this, we got to look at verse nine because it tells us that what happened here took place on a Sabbath, which you might be thinking the Sabbath is a day where you go and rest. You don't do anything. You kick your feet up. You eat your favorite snacks, whatever food you want. You have a good day. And then tomorrow happens and you go back to normal life. The Sabbath represents rest, right? Yes, but also it represents absolutely no kind of labor or work. In fact, the Jewish leaders had an extreme interpretation of the law of Moses. To observe the Sabbath, they not only tried to do that, but they also added 39 rules that in their minds, if you broke these rules, you'd be breaking the law. It wasn't God's law, but it was their law that they said, if you break our rules, then you're going to upset God. And they held these aggressively. One of those 39 rules was that if you carried a load from any certain point from one area to the next, you'd be breaking the Sabbath, which is why in a second we're going to read of a conversation he has with them where they're saying, who, who told you to break our rules? Never mind the fact that this man had been laying on the ground for 38 years and couldn't move. 
And they're witnessing this man walk for the first time in 40 years, but all they can see is that their rules have been broken. Talk about a critical spirit. God just moved and worked in this man's life in a miraculous way, and all they can see is that someone is breaking the Sabbath, in our opinion. And so eventually they find Jesus, and they have a conversation with him. They're trying to ask him, why are you doing these things? Who gave you the right to do this? And Jesus defends himself in verse 17 by saying this. He says this in his defense. My father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. Jesus tells them, there's not a day that I take off. The Sabbath is for man. But for me and my father, we're constantly working. We're doing stuff behind the scenes, even when you don't see it or feel it. You know the song. He's always at his work. Psalms would say this, that he is constantly in the midst of the earth working salvation. He's in the thick of it, moving around and doing things. He's not taking a break. I know sometimes in my life, I have felt like God has stopped working. I felt like God has disappeared and he's no longer to be around. Like I've just thought like maybe he's on a smoke break. I don't know what God's doing. And I imagine I'm not the only one who's thought that. Maybe not about the smoke break, but about God not working. In times of trouble and pain and difficulty, it's often easy to feel like God's gone. He's checked out. He's given up, just like everyone else. But Jesus wants us to know today that he is always working. You just don't always see it. But he's always at his work. He's always moving. He is able to do anything. He knows what needs to be done, and he's always at work And what makes this Sabbath thing even more heavy for this man is that he really shouldn't have expected anything to take place today because nothing happens on the Sabbath. Even if someone was around him when the waters would bubble, no one would pick him up. You're not allowed to. So it was a bad time. It was not the day to expect Jesus to move and work. But the good news is it's never a bad time for us to go to Jesus. It's never a bad day. Because he's always on the job. Amen? This man was all by himself, overlooked, worst condition possible, on the Sabbath, bad day to expect anything. All those ingredients make mission impossible. But Jesus decided this is a perfect time for me to step in and do something. Because the point is, there is no situation too hopeless for Jesus. You may be thinking, well, you don't know my situation. Fair, I don't. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you need today. I don't know what you've been through. But I do know that he does. And I do know he is able to do anything. And I do know that he wants to move closer to you like this man and move and work in your life. And listen, if this is true, this changes everything. Because if he is truly able to do anything, if he knows what I need, if he's always at work, then if I got a decision between a magical pool or this guy, I'm going with him. If I'm going to spend my life waiting day in and day out on something, I'm going to wait on the person who can do above anything I can ask, think, or imagine. Who knows me and sees me. Who cares enough about me to move closer to me. Who never takes a break. I'm going to wait on him. This is what we see in Jesus' compassion. But we don't only just see his compassion. We also see his plan. We see his plan. And what we're going to find out is that Jesus' work is not just around us physically or just do a good miracle, but he's got a plan to do much more. Look with me in verses 10 through 15. 
And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Who broke our rules? But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus told me to do it, and I did it. That's a good thing to follow. So they asked him, who is the fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Imagine that, being healed after 38 years, and the guy who did it just dips. I don't know. I'm walking now. My bad. But then verse 14, Jesus finds him. He finds up at the temple and he said to him, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Huh. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. Lot here, but I really want to hone in on this man's moment with Jesus because I think this is the point of his story. As far as we know, this is Jesus' last words to him. The rest of the chapters are going to actually revolve around this miracle and Jesus and the Jewish leaders arguing back and forth. But this man, after this conversation, he's gone. And I think what you find here is his unexpected maybe Jesus moment. Because this call to stop sinning, in effect, it's a call to follow Jesus. And people can't, dis- they can't decide whether or not this man reacted positively or negatively to Jesus' words. They really can't nail it down. Scholars, commentators, they have different takes. You ask, why is that? Because of verse 15. After Jesus tells him to stop sinning, he goes and tells the Jewish leaders who Jesus was. Those same people who were aggressively upset that their law had been broken, who eventually, in a few verses later, say they tried to persecute and kill Jesus because of this act, this man went to tell them who it was after he had found out who it was. He didn't know before, but then he found out and said, I'm going to go tell them. Out of respect, or is he trying to snitch on Jesus? Was it something he said? Was it the whole stop sinning or something worse may happen to you? I got a feeling that us like him today might hear that verse and we might cringe a bit. I think to us, it's easily something that can come off as a threat to us. Just listen to it. Stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. That feels like a threat to me. But I think that's rooted in a misunderstanding of Jesus' plan and his heart for us. I think of it like this. As I'm, a, I'm a young dad. I'm 26 years old, and I have two children, a four-year-old little girl and a two-year-old little boy, and actually a third on the way. How about that? Pray more than clap. That would be more preferred. Um, got another on the way. I'm way too young to have three kids. We don't have a kid, but I have three of them now. Praise the Lord. And they're at the stage where they're no longer just, you know, trying to grow and be, you know, nourished and loved on. But, like, I'm, I'm having to raise them up now and, like, make sure that they also are, like, decent human beings. So as children, there's a lot of times that you have to instruct your children, and they don't like that because they want to do whatever they want, right? But oftentimes what they do is bad. And so they love to play around in a rough house and luckily have a lot of laughter, which is loud sometimes, but it's happy. And so a lot of times I see things with parent vision, And if you are a parent, you know this. Or if you work in our kids' ministry, you know this. You just see things that could happen that will happen if you don't step in. And you look at it like, that is just a lot of blood. That right there is a lot of stitches. That's a hospital bill. That's a lot of tears. Like, we're not going to do that. So a lot of times you step in, you say, hey, stop. Stop running. Stop climbing on that couch. Stop jumping off the furniture. My son, when I get him out of the car, oftentimes, not so much in the winter because he's freezing, but in the summer, we get him out of the car, set him down, he'd start cackling and run straight into oncoming traffic on the main road. I don't know why, but I have to stop that man, right? Like he's a maniac. Now, here's my heart. My heart is not to rob my son of experiencing a fatal accident. 
My heart for my kids is not to rob them of the joy of a broken arm. I'm not trying to rob them of the joy of having to go to the hospital. I want to as far that is in my power to protect my kids. Because one, I love them more than they understand. Two, I know better than them. And I got their best interest in mind. And listen, today, I think that's exactly Jesus' heart for this man right here. He's not trying to rob him of the joy of sin. Study what sin does to you. It's bad. It robs you of your joy. It enslaves you. It leads to death. Sin is not a good thing. Jesus saying stop sinning is not him trying to rob him of some incredible lifestyle that he's about to go on and live. He's trying to tell him, hey, follow me. I know how life is supposed to be lived. I created you. I know how you're supposed to operate. Trust me with that. See, that's the decision this man has to come to. That's the decision we have to come to today. Why couldn't Jesus just heal the guy and let him go? He probably thought that was going to happen. Healed him, bounced, and then he shows up at the temple with this command. He's like, I didn't want this. I just wanted to walk again. Now you're telling me how to live. Why did he do that? Because Jesus is not a magic genie. In a lamp that we rub and get three wishes that makes our life better and then goes away. His goal and plan for us is not just to improve our life situation. He's got bigger plans than that. He told us his plans in Luke 19 when he said this, The Son of Man was sent to seek and save the lost. That's Jesus' plan for us. That's his goal. Not only for this man here, but for us today. That's the point. The plan of healing the man physically was to lead to a chance to save him spiritually. It was never just going to be, go on and live your life now. That's way too small for Jesus. He's got way too big of plans for us and just come in and make our lives better. It doesn't end there. Can Jesus make my life better? Can he fix all my problems? Can he heal me? Absolutely. If anyone can, it's Jesus. Every day, no doubt. And I hope Jesus does amazing things in your life. Miraculous things, I do, but don't think that he's just doing it to stop right there. He's always going to go further. And our decision today is if we're going to trust him in his heart for us. We're going to trust he has our best interests in mind, or we're going to trust that he actually knows better, or we're going to trust that he knows how to live life. It tells us in John 10 that he did not come to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the enemy's job. He came to give life and give it full. But to follow him, we got to understand that we don't know better. We have to surrender that. We have to lay down our lives. We have to follow his ways. And that's hard. Anyone who says it's not hard is lying. It's hard. Even though sin is not great for us, it's hard. Even though the thing that we're looking at isn't panning out, it's hard to let go. See, some of you in this room today, you don't just need Jesus to walk in and to help you physically. You need Jesus to save you. You're like this man laying on the ground spiritually, can't move, and has no hope. And Jesus has much bigger plans for you than just to help you walk again. He wants to help you walk with him for all eternity. Because he is able. He knows what needs to be done. And he is always working, but he's got a plan. And that plan includes 
you and me trusting him, not just with our everyday life, but with our eternities, with our soul. The question today is, will we? Would you pray with me as we close today? Father, thank you so much for being a God who's compassionate towards us. Lord, thank you that you are a God who is able to do far more than we can ask, think, or imagine. Thank you you're a God who sees and who knows. You say in your word that you are not someone who can't empathize with us, but you know what it's like to be us. You know what it's like to suffer and to struggle, to face temptation, to be afraid, to have heartache. You understand. Thank you that you're always working, Lord. You don't take breaks. You never stop. Thank you that you have a plan that's bigger than what we think we need. I love what Pastor Christian said last week. We don't come to Jesus because he has what we want. We come to him because he has what we need. If you're someone today who doesn't know Jesus, but you're tired of staring at that pool of Bethesda, hoping something to take place will, hoping you can be the one to get in first, hoping it will pan out to be the thing to fix you and help you, but you're done and you're ready to embrace Jesus and to trust him with your life, you can't today. All you have to do is pray something simple like this from your heart to heaven, not out loud. You can just say something like this, Jesus, I need you. Need you to forgive me of my sin. Need you to cleanse me of my past, to heal me of my hurt. Jesus, I surrender my life to you and your purposes. I need your salvation. And I commit to following you, believing that you know what's best and that you have my best interest in mind. If you prayed something like that, or even if you wanted to pray something like that, we're going to have some next steps for you in a moment. For, for the Christians in the room, what is God saying to you today? You could be a Christian today, and you can still be struggling to believe that God is able, that he knows, that he's working. You could have lost sight of the plan he has for you to follow him. Maybe there's an area in your life that you have not surrendered yet to him. Maybe you know someone today who's broken and in need of of help. You know their situation and you just know that they need Jesus just to say the word. Would you pray for them right now? Whatever name came to mind, would you pray for those people right now that God would walk into their situation, that they would come to meet Jesus? Father, we need you today. And we thank you for the word that you had for us. We thank you for the things we've learned about you. We thank you for who you are. Father, would you help us to embrace and believe that? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the 10th time, even if I stand here, God, I'm realizing I need to believe that. I'm needing to remember that Jesus is able and aware and always working. And the best thing that I can do right now in my life is to simply follow him. 
So Lord, help us today. Give us the strength to do that today, to follow in obedience. We love you, Lord. We need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.